This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of June 6, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 323 of Defender Radio. It's been a bad few weeks for zoo animals in North America. Harem, a silverback gorilla in the Cincinnati Zoo, was shot to death after a young child found his way into the large primate's enclosure. Rebel, a gray wolf at a Wisconsin zoo, was killed so he could be tested for rabies after a child was bitten on the fingers through a fence while in a restricted area. And at a small petting zoo set up for children in Ontario just this past weekend, animals were left without shelter or water on a sweltering summer day. As the harsh reality of life in a zoo has started settling upon the North American pop media psyche, familiar questions have started arising. Do animals belong in zoos? Are zoos really helping to conserve endangered species? And how else will children learn about these animals? We don't have the answers to all of these questions. Really, we just have more questions. But to help us ask them of ourselves, and to explain what we can do to improve the lives of animals in zoos today, Defender Radio was joined by children's book author and head of the nonprofit Zoo Check, Rob Laidlaw. I think you, you and I over the years have now spoken about elephants, we've spoken about your books, we've spoken about marine land, and I've decided that here today you and I are going to fix the zoo problem once and for all. Okay. Uh, so there's no pressure on you for this interview. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk a bit about, I guess, um, what Zoo Check does in this realm, uh, because it's, it's one of these things where I think everybody has been an expert on zoos, on wildlife, on parenting, on pretty much everything as a result of these the slew of recent incidents. So where does ZooCheck kind of fit into this this realm of wildlife policy, exotic animals, and so on? Well, I think more than being sort of uh, uh, a voice for the issue, we've tended to... Uh, move a little bit away from that, although, you know, we still play a part in that. Uh, but what we've moved toward is more the political side of trying to bring this issue or aspects of this issue to some type of resolution. So we've been certainly uh, active in communicating to policymakers and elected officials across the country and, in fact, in other jurisdictions. Uh, we work with a lot of other organizations who are like-minded and pursuing uh, resolution of wildlife and captivity issues in their areas. And of course, uh, we also um, carry out uh, a number of our own investigations and reviews of zoos. And while in the past, most of those were uh, made public, um, these days we tend to produce a lot of materials that go to official agencies and only become public uh, after the fact. So. Um, we're still continuing to do uh, a lot of the things that we did in the past, but I think we've become a little bit more sophisticated in our approach and in the politics of what we do. And, um, and of course, along with that, like I said, we're trying to capacity build in other organizations and make sure that they can become part of dealing with these issues as well, because there's a limited capacity for us. Uh, we can't do everything. Yeah, and in fact, we get calls uh, every week, uh, usually multiple calls 
uh, from people, uh, not only in Ontario, but in other parts of Canada, the United States, and even overseas. And all of them are wanting help with those issues. Uh, just uh, this week, we've had already requests from British Columbia, from um, uh, Dubai, from Japan, and other areas. So it seems like there's an endless number of people that are concerned, many of them wanting to work on this, that are seeking advice or help of, of some kind. So, yeah, it's, it's almost impossible to keep up with it all. But we do our best. Well, and I think that begs the question then, uh, and again, you're not new to this. You're not new to the zoo issue. You're not new to advocacy. Why is this continuing to be an issue? Just big picture, uh, wildlife and confinement, particularly in the format of zoos. Why, why do people continue to both go to zoos and, and uh, animal-based theme parks and so on, and at the same time have so many people that clearly see a problem with this? What's, what's causing that strange dichotomy? Uh, I think it's multifaceted, but certainly um, the zoo industry, or at least so-called better parts of the zoo industry, have had uh, a multi-decade head start in establishing their message and in entrenching it uh, both culturally and politically. So it's only been the last about 15 years or so, and more vigorously in the last five years, that the whole idea of zoos, not just you know the, the ones that are obviously the worst of the bunch, but even the so-called better zoos, it's only been in the last uh, 15 years that what they do, how they operate, what they say is being challenged. And I think it's going to take time to dismantle and uh, dismantle the arguments that they present, uh, and they are being dismantled right now, um, and it will take some time to erode that entrenchment in culture and politics. We see it happening. You know, a lot of people may think, oh, nothing's happening, it's taking so long, but we actually see it happening bit by bit by bit. It's very incremental. Um, one of the things we have seen is not only changes in policy and law in different jurisdictions, both in Canada and elsewhere, but we've certainly seen a massive increase uh, in, in empathy and concern in the public consciousness. Uh, so we see a lot of change occurring, but, you know, obviously for the animals and for a lot of people, it can't occur fast enough. And I attended a conference called The Future of Zoos a couple of years ago, and one guy who spoke up and, and gave a presentation, he, he put it very well in that he said, changing the zoo industry or, or you know, the uh, um uh, farmed animal industry or laboratory animal science industry, these these uh, are, are very much like trying to change the course of the world's largest ocean liner. It's not like a kayak where you, with one stroke of the paddle, you can change the direction. You know, it's more like an ocean liner, these industries, where, you know, the change and, and the turning of direction requires many, many, many kilometers. So, you know, we've started that curve on many issues, including wildlife and captivity, but we're sort of still at the beginning, maybe the first 20, 25% of this issue. I think we've got a long way to go. But for, uh, for this issue particularly, wildlife and captivity, I think uh, it looks very promising. And you can see this uh, exponential growth in people that are expressing concern, you know, partially due to 
the cove and blackfish and uh, even Cecil the lion and now Harambe's death in Cincinnati Zoo, things like that. Um, I think that growth will continue. We're going to have a lot of watershed moments, and I think the uh, pressure now in the zoo industry is is probably greater than it's been in the last couple of decades. Well, and that's something I certainly agree with. Uh, I, I truly believe that <clears throat> Uh, sustainable change takes time because when you try and force change on people, you're not actually changing the way they feel or what they believe. You're just changing the circumstance. Um, and that's when, I mean, I, I look to fur, uh, obviously, as one of our prime issues. I don't think that in the 1980s, during that first big shift, that it was necessarily about changing people's attitudes so much as it was about changing the circumstance. So that's why 30 years later, fur was able to make a resurgence. Um and I see that in a lot of things. And my, my classic example is always going to be um, prohibition in the United States. Uh, you know, they tried to force a moral imperative without the support of the people. And it led to the development of the most powerful underworld uh, of all time that we still feel the results of today, uh, 80 years later. Yeah, exactly. I think for lasting change, certainly, you know, there has been uh, historically... Uh, times when change has been forced. But for lasting, true, meaningful change, uh, I think we need to change the way people think about animals um, qu quite dramatically. I, I think we need to see change, and, and I actually think that is happening. Uh, we certainly, as I said, see it manifested in, in many different ways. Well, this is, again, something that I find interesting, and this is maybe you know, almost sort of get in early is, is the crux of what we're going to be talking about and what we, we have talked about is the points at which the change begins to happen. Because you look at, um, we look at any of these three incidents that have happened recently, a gorilla in Cincinnati, a wolf in, uh, I think it was Minnesota, um, where I'm just going to take a quick look and see if I can find it, Wisconsin. Um, and um, then the, uh, the kangaroo in Ontario. And all of these things, people were very happy to go and see these animals until they saw distress, uh, until something significant happened. And that's not to say that distress wasn't always there, but I think to those who have not spent time learning about animal emotions, who have not really experienced that, it's it's the first, holy cow, there's something going on here, pun intended. Um, so is there a way then to sort of, let's let's get to that point without the gorilla being shot, without the wolf being killed without, you know, the kangaroo suffering. Is there a way to advance people to that point where they firsthand see that suffering? Uh, I, I think there is, but uh, it is a long, slow process. I think we've certainly seen uh, a change in perspective on the part of many people uh, through the influx of new science. So in the past, originally, we had people like Ann Dagg studying giraffes and Jane Goodall studying chimps and Diane Fossey with mountain gorillas and, you know, George Schaller with lions. And, you know, some of those uh, original people who went out to study these animals brought back uh, all kinds of information that uh, started to change people's perspectives about these animals. I think, you know, the numbers of people who followed in the footsteps of those people I mentioned are, are, are huge. And now we have people studying everything from octopus and fish to 
uh, other kinds of large mammals. And I think the science, uh, to a certain extent, uh, is driving some of the change. People now have a better understanding than they did in the past as to how some of these animals actually live, how endangered they are, primarily through the activities of humans, uh, what their lives should be like. And I think uh, more and more people, or certainly more and more people I encounter, uh, are applying what they've seen and learned from science uh, to the situations that they encounter in their daily lives. And of course, a lot of the science is coming through popular media, so radio shows, uh, the internet, television, documentary films, and all of that. So I think that's uh, leading to change. Uh, I think also the the exponential rise in the number of, of animal groups uh, has helped quite considerably as well. Uh, we're seeing in China now this, this massive increase in the number of animal welfare groups that are starting to get the message out there in China about bile bears and and dog meat and, and and creatures like that. And you know, I saw that here here in Canada and in the U.S. when I started. You know, in terms of sort of the um, progressive advocacy type of animal organization. You know, in North America, when I started over 30 years ago, you could probably count on the fingers of both hands the numbers of groups, but uh, the last count I heard was there's now between eight and 10,000. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's so many things that are driving change. I think it's occurring. Uh, of course, as I said uh, previously, it can never occur fast enough for the animals that are being uh, neglected or abused or exploited right now. Um, but it is uh, occurring, and I think it's gaining steam. Well, and something I wanted to ask you, uh, specifically you, because again, of your, your interesting background and the fact that you've been writing children's books and all of this, is as these conversations happen, and I know you've seen some of them, and, and as you said, you've been very busy trying to keep up with just what's happening locally, let alone what's happening internationally. But as you know, uh, uh, you know, everyone has become a parenting expert. Everyone has become a gorilla behavior expert. Everyone's become a zoo exhibit expert on Facebook, on Twitter, in the media. And uh, it, it, it seems that the issue itself is frequently being watered down by trying to assign blame by who is more right or more wrong. How do you advise when, when we're having these conversations, whether it's sitting next to each other at a bar, at a conference, around the dinner table, uh, or on Facebook, unfortunately, uh, how, how do you think we need to be having conversations when tragedy does occur, when we're looking at these incidents individually? Yeah, I, I would agree that uh, it's not productive a lot of the time to try to uh, assign blame to a particular person, whether it's parents of a child or, or even to a zoo. What I like to point out to people is that uh, 99 times out of 100, um, when you're looking at, at the wildlife and captivity industry, these people who operate zoos or wildlife displays or who you know take animals out on mobile uh, presentations or whatever, uh, they're only doing what they're allowed to do. And I think most of the blame uh, really lies at the foot of government. You know, government are supposed to protect uh, the interests of people, of course, you know, health and safety and, and all of that. And there's also incumbent upon governments because animals are of value to people to, to protect animals. And many have actually said that, that they want to do that. And it's articulated in certain policies and laws, although not nearly enough. So 
uh, I always like to point out that instead of uh, assigning blame to this, you know, wide range of uh, interest parties, assign it where it really is most important, and that's at government, because too often uh, government gets off the hook when people engage in these debates against a zoo or against, you know, uh, a private individual for not controlling their child. A good example is, is here in Ontario. You know, uh, I really admire all the people who go down and protest at Marineland, but I have no doubt in my mind that every time people congregate in front of Marineland, the government is breathing a sigh of relief and rubbing their hands with glee, and they're just glad that the protesters are not at their doors. You know, they're the ones that are responsible. So I think in all of these things, rather than, than assign blame, at least in most cases, we have to look at who's allowing this to happen and try to deal with that side of things. Because a lot of these people, like I said, they're only doing what they're allowed to do. And I think that that really sort of fades into something you already said, which is uh, uh, dissembling some of the, the myths, I would call them, of uh, why zoos are necessary. And this this is something that, um, you know, I, uh, you and I both deal with anyone involved in wildlife advocacy of any animal advocacy of any kind will deal with is all of the yeah, but and what if uh, arguments. And I think the biggest one right now, and I know you and I have spoken about this in the past, or I, I might have just heard you speak about it at a conference, but is the, the, the entire endangered species thing um, that zoos are necessary because they protect endangered species and that's good. But when we actually start to talk about that in depth, the argument is almost a straw man. I mean, they're holding up this endangered species card, but there's no depth to it. Um, so, you know, in the case of uh, a gorilla, is a zoo helping endangered species by having him in uh, in their, you know, in confinement? Oh, ab absolutely not. There's uh, no intention or plan or capacity to ever introduce gorillas back into the wild in any meaningful way. Uh, I would say when you look at the whole argument about conservation by zoos, and, and typically what's presented to the public is this notion of a zoo as ARC, that they will breed animals, usually endangered species, and the impression that they give is that they will then take the offspring of a founder population and repopulate the wild, or certainly replenish diminished stocks of animals in the wild, these threatened or endangered species. But when you examine what they say uh, in detail, you find that it, that's largely a mythology, and that, in fact, most of the breeding programs, um, they have inherent challenges that make them uh, pretty much ineffective in doing what they're supposed to do. And most of the breeding programs have no intent nor any mechanism for ever putting animals back into the wild. And that's why when you sort of survey what zoos claim around the world, you find the same few species, uh, like Przewalski's horse, like Vancouver Island marmot, like black-footed ferret, California condor. There's about 15 or 20 species that every one of the 10 to 12,000 zoos in the world shunt out time and time again as a rationale for their existence saying, look how great we are. You know, recently they added Wyoming toad and a couple of others. But you don't need zoos to do that. And in fact, you could do it far cheaper and more effectively uh, in other kinds of facilities. So the record with regard to, you know, repopulating the wild or the reintroduction of danger 
endangered species uh, from zoos is pretty much uh, and could fairly be characterized as an unmitigated disaster. It, it's largely a myth. It doesn't happen. They have no intention of, of doing that. And this is articulated now in the academic literature. If you read the books from the actual animal welfare scientists and conservation biologists in the zoo community, you know, you will find it's not just people like me saying that. They are saying this, that you know, the zoo as arc is, is uh, a failed concept, it's outdated, it doesn't work, uh, and we have to move on to other things. So, you know, suggestions now are, you know, providing more support for in-situ conservation, providing technical expertise to manage what they call metapopulations, which are different populations of animals of the same species and things like that. But the idea that's presented to the public, and you can see it here in Toronto, you know, African Lion Safari, all these places, that the zoo is still an ark, that, that's uh, really just, just biological nonsense. It's fantasy. It's wishful thinking. And, you know, I don't think anybody who seriously looks at this buys that anymore. So the whole conservation sort of angle of zoos, I think, is largely a mythology and really isn't backed up by much of anything. And if you actually look at the funding for in-situ conservation by the zoo community, you'll find that it's negligible at best. So there was a New York Times uh, article a couple of years ago that said it was um, 1% uh, or less than 1% of AZA Zoo's annual operating budgets that went, went to conservation. Uh, it's less in, in most Canadian zoos. And for many zoos, it's actually nothing. Uh, there's only a, a handful of zoos out of the 10 or 12,000 uh, in the world that actually provide anything substantive for uh, in-situ conservation. So the whole idea of conservation of animals through captive breeding or zoos supporting conservation in the wild, uh, it's really a lot of nonsense when you look at it in detail. And I, I guess I, I, I need to ask you, what about the children? And that's, you know, I, that, we, we laugh, but that's, I, I think, maybe what could be at the root of a lot of this. Um, like, I think back the last time I was at a zoo, and I was talking about this with someone on, uh, on Facebook somewhere. The last time I was at a zoo as an adult was probably around 10 years ago before I knew better. And I don't remember a lot from the visit, but I do remember uh, a male lion who was at Toronto, uh, uh, Toronto Zoo uh, standing up, stretching and roaring. And it wasn't a big one, but you feel it in your bones. It's, it's a, an impressive thing. Um, and I've since, you know, I've got some of the, the DVDs and Blu-rays from BBC and Disney about all these animals, but nothing quite compared to that feeling. And I still remember it. Um, and sort of taking from that, that, that admission that everything I've experienced outside of the actual being near that animal, while incredible and majestic, nothing quite compared to that same sensation. And I think a lot of people look and they say, well, I want my children to be able to experience that. I want my children to see these animals that they'll otherwise never see uh, outside of a television or a book. And I, as much as it, it's frustrating, I think that's, it's a valid initial argument. But how do you respond to that? I mean, how do you sort of say your kid's not worth it? Um, or do you say it more politely than I would in that regard? Like, cause again, I personally, I, I can admit that uh, uh, 
the feeling of being near the animal right. made a difference. Well, I think there are uh, a number of different responses. Uh, my first response would be that uh, as entertainment facilities, I think, you know, they do a good job. I think members of the public, uh, whether they care about animals or not, can go to the zoo and have a nice day out and be entertained. Usually they move through the zoo in a TV clicker style, you know, running from one cage to the next, uh, looking at animals. If an animal isn't doing anything, you know, especially kids, they'll, they'll quickly uh, move on and, until they find an animal that is doing something. So as, as entertainment and entities, uh, you know, I, I think, I think they work, but that's not what zoos say they are. They say that that's sort of an ancillary purpose, that their real purpose, and they increasingly articulate this in their promotional materials, is conservation. And when you look at uh, those claims, and then you look at who they're directing their message to, you find that it is largely kids or, or uh, families with, with young children. And you have to ask, if this is a conservation institution and that is their primary audience, well, what, what is happening? What is the conservation outcome? What are people learning? And what you find is they're not learning much of anything. They're not retaining any information. The studies show that. What information they do get is soft-pedaled about conservation. There's no uh, sort of hard-nosed reality-based messaging. It's usually simple factoids about animals that anybody could pick up in a children's book or, or you know, by Googling for, for 30 seconds. So you don't get much in the way of, of education occurring. And then uh, beyond that, and perhaps most more importantly, you get no behavior change. Uh, so people don't go to the zoo and learn a lot and then go home and change their lives so that it benefits animals. They don't do that. There's no evidence whatsoever that that occurs. So you have to then say, well, you know, they're an entertainment institution, but they're not really a conservation institution because there's no outcome. So, you know, uh, I think you have, you have to look at look at that. You have to look at outcomes. If they claim that they are there for conservation, then let's see a conservation outcome. And if they're claiming they're only there for entertainment, well, so be it. You know, you, at least you can respect that. They're honest. But, uh, you know, if they're there for conservation and their primary audience is kids or families with kids, then let's see some outcomes. And we're not seeing any at all. Well, and I, I'm curious too then, uh, uh, on that same note, something we've been seeing more and more of is the, and for a while it was hashtag bear selfie, but it's it's all kinds of animals realistically. Um, and I'm wondering if this is almost a spinoff of what we have taught people uh, because of Zeus, is we've taught them that animals are there for us to look at and they are there for us to, to enjoy in that sense. And we're seeing people in Yellowstone, it seems monthly they have a case of this, of people inappropriately approaching animals. There was a case in BC where someone was hand-feeding rice crackers to a black bear on the side of the road while filming it. And I think, you know, the, the, the combination of uh, mobile technology, so, you know, anyone can do this now, whereas even 20 years ago you had to know your way around a camera. Um, and then this, do you think that we've, have we taught people that animals are there for us? And, and again, that's kind of, you know, the other part of that, uh, feeling the lion roar thing for me. Um, the recognition of that, that I think that even while recognizing that my thinking that 
is an indication that I have been taught that I am, you know, I should be able to enjoy that. Yeah. Uh, let me just get uh, one point in that I, that I didn't mention previously with regard to your, your earlier question, and that's uh, uh, for children looking at animals that, you know, when, uh, certainly when we are talking about um, sort of let's move on from the zoo concept, that doesn't mean that there won't be opportunities necessarily for people to view wildlife, either in person in the flesh or through other uh, technological means. Uh, there are all kinds of models out there now that show that there can be a far more humane and productive way of presenting live animals to the public that are not like zoos. And certainly, there are tremendous new technologies like light animals, indoor whale watching, and Orbi Zoo in Japan, and, and places like that, that really show you can have this dynamic and exciting experience where you're learning and, and, and actually, to a certain extent, feeling what animals feel uh, without them being their lives. So uh, for kids, there's all kinds of uh, opportunities beyond the zoo for them to see animals. And the other thing that I would add about that is we have to teach kids that animals are everywhere. The ones that we tend to value when we go to the zoo are the ones that are from faraway places and are big and charismatic. So you've got panda bears and lions and this and that. We have to change that perspective and make them realize that there is valuable wildlife everywhere. There's millions of birds that migrate over Toronto every year. There are coyotes, there are opossums, there are all kinds of creatures, even in the cracks of the sidewalks outside our houses. There are whole ecosystems of life. And I think we have to say, we don't need to go down the street to appreciate nature. It's all around us. Uh, obviously, some of it altered by human activity, but you know, some of it not. But we have to look at it and appreciate it and see it in a different way. See that it's all around us and it's all valuable, not just the animal in the cage down the street. So uh, I would just throw that in about uh, uh, about kids. Now, with regard to, you know, you, your other question, I would say that uh, we see all kinds of manifestations of uh, I think uh, an attitude that may have come from Zeus, at least partially, and that's you know the wanting animals close and hugging them and and seeing them in ways that they they really aren't. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking of very recently is this whole idea of Zeus. Why is it so entrenched? And uh, I've come to believe that that what people today and probably for the last hundred years or so have experienced is this process of normalization of the zoo experience. So, you know, we all grow up now and there's a zoo in this city or that city, there's an aquarium, there's, you know, a circus, there's all these situations. And to us, because we see them from the time we're young, unless we're particularly empathetic to animals, this is the normal course of affairs. It is normal to have the elephant in the pen down the street or the lion in the pen down the street. I think that's very dangerous. I think we have to start to change that perspective and say, wow, it's not normal. It is completely abnormal. It's weird. It's unusual. It's stupid to have the elephant in the cage down the street or the lion in the cage down the street. We have to see that as so profoundly abnormal and unusual and, and ridiculous. 
that we don't accept that anymore. So I think what what uh, some people now, uh, and, and it was re- really interesting in the last week with the Harambee death, to see a lot, a lot of these ideas articulated in, in various columns and, and podcasts and things uh, where people are starting to question, you know, more than just the care of the animal or the safety or this or that. They're looking at, at the big picture. I think they're starting to, to challenge this whole normalization process that has occurred and they're starting to see, uh, or at least some people are starting to see the zoo uh, as a profoundly abnormal or unusual or, or, or um, negative thing. To learn more about ZooCheck, Rob Laidlaw, or his books, and how you can help animals in captivity, visit ZooCheck.com. That's the show for this week, folks. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.